Well, hello. Good morning. I'm Pastor Sean. It is lovely to see each and every one of you here on this Sunday morning at Mayflower. We're glad you're here. If this is your first time or maybe your second or third, you're relatively new here. Welcome. Please come introduce yourself to me if you if you haven't done that already. And there's a friendship register, uh, a little bit of information we could get from you to do some follow up. Uh, You can find them in your pews and pass those along as well. To those who are joining us virtually, we're glad you're here. We wish you could be here in person, but uh, we're glad that you've joined us in this this way. And now I'd like to invite you to greet one another with a traditional exchange of peace. The peace of Christ be with you. Let us share God's peace with one another. Good morning. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of the month, and we will be offering shuttle service to all those residents that live at Cook Valley. So if you have a friend there, if you are watching via live stream, and you would like to join us in person next Sunday, we would love to have you invite a friend. All are welcome. We will be beginning a new members class in October on Wednesday nights. If you are interested in finding out more information, please note that on the Friendship Register or you can call the church office. The upgroups, which gather together people of similar ages and life stages, continue to host fantastic fall events. The 59 upgroup will be heading to brunch after church on October 9th, and invite everyone to join them. And the 29 Up group is going to be hosting a good old-fashioned hoedown on October 15th here in the church parking lot. All are invited, though, to come to this fun square dancing event. Easy Isle String Band will be our square dance teachers, I guess, or callers. I can't remember what they called themselves, but it'll be really fun. So please plan on joining us. Bible studies, needlepoint, church, um, children's choir during midweek, and so much more are happening in our building. Please visit our website for more information. I'd now like to invite Dr. Julia Brown for the moment for music. This morning, I'd like to highlight one of the choir anthems. It's written by Thomas Tallis, If Ye Love Me. Thomas Tallis was born in 1505 and lived 80 years. That is a long life in the 1500s. He served four monarchs and was a composer in the royal chapel. And he writes what we call um, Renaissance polyphony. 
Um, and he, depending on who the king or queen was at the time, he either had to write f- uh, for the Latin Mass or for the Church of England uh, anthems in English. So this comes from the time of Elizabeth I. And just kind of to imagine in our brain um, the time when he lived, he was composing and um, playing the organ and writing before Shakespeare was even born. What does the Holy One require of us? To be just, kind, and humble before God. So give thanks to God with your whole heart. Worship Him in spirit and truth. People of God, let us worship the Lord.
Let us pray. Oh, God, you are the strength of all who put their trust in you. Because in our weakness, we can do nothing good without you. Give us the help of your grace so that in keeping your commandments, we may please you in will and deed. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So now I invite you to bring your sins before the Lord, first in a moment of silence for personal confession, and then in a corporate confession found in your bulletin that will speak together. Let us now come before the Lord. And now we confess together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, Have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways, to the glory of your name. Amen. The God who makes the sun shine and the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike, he does not withhold mercy from those who ask. So sisters and brothers, in Jesus Christ, complete forgiveness is yours. Be at peace. Amen. Please be seated.
I'd like to invite all the children worshiping with us today in preschool and grade school to come forward for the children's message. Good morning. It's so fun to see all of you. All right, so we are talking about school supplies because it we are back to school and we are doing it. So there is one thing that all of us do from the very beginning when we start drawing is we draw ourselves. And when you're little, you I've seen lots of little guys' drawings. Sometimes like our hair is purple and our skin is green, and your eyes are red, all those beautiful colors. But then you get to kindergarten, and the kindergarten teacher says to you, your picture of yourself looks pretty, but guess what? Your hair isn't purple, and your eyes aren't green. So let's learn to draw ourselves the way that we really are. And up until recently, that hasn't been so easy when we're drawing our skin color. Because often, in a box of colored pencils, there's two choices that you can use to try to make the color of skin that we all have. Except now, Crayola has done something amazing. They have made a package of colored pencils that have 24 different colors, and they're called Colors of the World Colored Pencils. And they're meant to represent all the different skin colors that all of us have all around the world. And I look at this and you think, oh, it's just colored pencils. But I think this makes God so happy. Because God did this on purpose. He made us all have different colored skin, different colored hair and eyes, because he thinks it's all beautiful. And so if Crayola is able to make colored pencils that represent all of us and all of our uniqueness, I think we're going in a really awesome direction. So I am excited to see all of your portraits, and maybe we'll start doing um, self-portraits in Sunday school so we can see how you see yourselves and how God sees you as well. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are thankful. We are thankful that you are an artist and that you create us all beautifully in your own image, which is so diverse and so wonderful. May we always see that and bless it and be glad for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends. If you are a fifth grader, you are going to go back to your seats. And you are going to sit with your parents during the service. So if you're a fifth grader, you want to stand up and you can head back to your family for the service. If you are three years old or four years old, stand up with me. If you're three, four, or five. All right. We're going to go with Mrs. Coster to Bible Beginnings. And everyone else, if you can stand up, if you're in first grade, second grade, third, or fourth, you are going to go with Mrs. Weiner to Bible Alive.
Hi, my name is Sydney Lovell, and this is my grandma Susan Lovell. The reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, and can be found beginning on page 684 in your Bible. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka is answerable to Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary, who is taking you to the court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. If you have heard, if you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble... Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep your oaths that you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to see you, take your tunic, let him hand over your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give it to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one that, who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of God, your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and reigns on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those 
who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as as your your heavenly Heavenly Father Father is perfect. The word word of the the Lord. Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, maybe you've seen this in stores. Maybe you know this, but you can buy for a little bit of extra money jeans that have ready-made holes in them, making it look like you've lived a good life and adventured and worked real hard in them. Do you know that you can buy spray-on mud to put on the side of your SUV so it looks like you've been off-roading, even if you haven't? Yeah, that's a thing. You could buy that. There are many shortcuts out there to looking like you've walked the walk, done the work, had the adventure. But in Christian discipleship, there's only one way. And it means going all in with your whole life. This is our third week in our series on the Sermon of the Mount. We could think of it as a whole discourse on discipleship. And in this sermon, over and over, Jesus asks us, Will you follow me? Now, last week, we heard Jesus make a claim. He claims he fulfills all the scriptures. This week, in our passage, we're going to see him do it. He gives six examples of the higher righteousness of God's kingdom. Now, these examples, as you just heard read, follow the format You have heard, but I tell you. And when he does that, he cuts through misinterpretations of God's commands. And he brings us a fuller picture of God's will for us. Now these six examples uh, are not all there is to say. They lay out the scope and the depth of Jesus' call to discipleship. It's all of you. It's, it's every part of your life right down to the bone. So today we'll hear Jesus beckoning us. In all the areas of your life, be radical disciples who live out the kingdom of God. Now, I've made a tough assignment for myself. Each one of these examples could easily be a sermon on its own. There's really so much here. So I'll try my very best to summarize. And since this passage builds to a climax, I think it'll be helpful for us this morning to take Jesus' six examples in reverse order. So let's start at the end. In verses 43 through 48, Jesus says, Love your enemies and turn them into neighbors. Through Moses, God told his people to love their neighbors. But but listen, if you have neighbors, then you have non-neighbors. If you're supposed to love those who are around you, those who are like you, your own kind, then you can hate those who aren't. So people in Jesus' day, 
interpreted this command to mean that they should love their fellow Israelites and they should hate their enemies. Enemies like the pagan Gentiles and the Romans who were oppressing them. Well, Jesus says that you got this all wrong. Love your enemies. This is one of the hardest, most radical teachings of Jesus. But first, who's your enemy? I mean, I think many of us here today don't really think we have enemies. I mean, who, who has enemies? I mean, soldiers have enemies. I get it. You know, superheroes have enemies. Superman and Wonder Woman have arch enemies. I get that. But, you know, normal people like us, we're... we're I'm a nice person. I try to get along with everyone. I don't have enemies. But I think that that definition of an enemy is a bit too narrow. Because if I don't have enemies, then I don't have to really listen to what Jesus says here. But I do have enemies. And so do you. So I want you to try and experiment with me here. Think of a person or maybe a group of people where if something bad happened to them, you'd be a little happy about it. Right? I mean, we might not admit this out loud, but if something went wrong for them, you'd smile in your heart a little bit. You'd say, yeah. Okay, now do you have a list of enemies? I bet you do. Yeah. One time I was talking with my British friend about this, and initially he said, I don't have enemies. But later on he said, well, if you put it that way, I actually have a long list of enemies. Number one, the French. <laughs> I love the Brits. <laughs> Deep down, we all have people we want to see get hurt. And you know what? It goes the other way, too. An enemy could be someone who has you on their list. We all have enemies. So what do disciples do? We love them. We love them completely, like God loves completely. Jesus basically says, be perfect in love as your heavenly Father is perfect in love. Well, what does the heavenly Father do? He showers rain and sun sunshine on the good and the bad, on the righteous and the unrighteous. So don't just love those who love you. Don't just love your own kind. Be like God. Love those who hate you. Love your enemy. Love those Romans who are persecuting you and making your life difficult. Love your former boss who really stuck it to you and ruined your career. Love the contractor who swindled you out of a bunch of money. Pray for them. Pray that they repent. Be with them. Work towards their good. Turn your enemies into neighbors. Well, continuing to work backward in the passage, in verses 38 through 42... Jesus says to show total love towards those who do evil towards you. Now, to understand what Jesus is getting at here, we have to think about something called the law of retribution. 
That's what's meant when it says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's a little complicated, but in a nutshell, the law of retribution goes something like this. Wrongdoing must be punished. It doesn't matter who you are. Punishment must be meted out. And the punishment must be proportional to the crime. An eye for an eye. What's interesting is that Jesus counters this understanding with his own kingdom ethics. He's changing the rules here on us. See, the law of retribution is good. It does a very good job at restraining sin and evil. But it can't go down and get to the deeper root causes. Now, if you really want to fundamentally change things, Jesus says that we are to be merciful. Wrongdoing doesn't need to be punished in order for things to be made right. Instead, we forgive. We don't retaliate and we don't use violence to resist a bad person who's doing us wrong. No, instead, we resist them with active love. Do you remember when Jesus was being betrayed in the garden? Now, the officials had come to arrest him and to kill him. And think about it. If there was ever a time where violence could be justified to resist evil, this was it. I mean, you should do whatever it takes to protect the life of the Son of God. And that's exactly what Jesus' disciple Peter does. He gets out his sword and he starts swinging at his enemies. He even cuts off the ear of one of them named Malchus. But do you remember what happens in that moment? See, Jesus has a different way. He tells Peter, no more of this. Put your weapon away. And then he heals. He heals the guy's ear. The way of Jesus is not violence. It's radical, subversive love. So what do disciples do? We don't retaliate. No, our tools are grace and compassion and mercy. We form an alternative society where justice comes through love. That's how we change the world. That's how the kingdom of God comes to us. So let's for a moment look at Jesus' examples of peacemaking. Remember a few weeks ago, blessed are the peacemakers. Here's what this looks like for Jesus. And I think that we'll see just how subversive his ethics are. Slapping someone, slapping you on your right cheek is an insult to your dignity. When someone hits you, when someone cuts you down, instead of striking back, create a scene of grace. Offer the other cheek also, and you will reveal the violence for exactly what it is. If anyone wants to sue you for your shirt, give the greedy person your coat your coat as well. The imagery Jesus gives us is that you should stand there in the courtroom completely exposed. And this act of embarrassment will fully expose their greed.
If anyone forces you to carry their gear for a mile, like the Roman soldiers had the legal right to do with Jewish citizens, go beyond their expectations. Voluntarily carry it for two. And subvert their power. Give to those who ask for something and give it freely. Create a culture of generosity, Jesus says. In the kingdom, when we're wronged, we're not to hit back. We are not to take revenge. We are to show unflinching, uncompromising love. That is the way of Jesus. Now let's move on to what Jesus has to say about oaths in verses 33 through 37. Uh, In short... He tells us to be people of invariable truth. Now, there's there's a little background detail that will help us make sense of what Jesus says here. In his day, because people wanted to avoid taking the Lord's name in vain, they would substitute the name of God for other things. They'd say things like, I swear to heaven. I swear upon earth. I swear on Jerusalem. I swear on my head when they would then go to make a statement. And then out of that, this sort of honesty scale emerged where uh, the higher the thing that you swore against, the more stringent the requirement was for you to be honest and the lower thing. Well, you know, you can play some games and be a little deceptive. This like scale developed. And that's what Jesus is attacking here. Notice how he breaks it down. God is everywhere. You can't have weaker and stronger oaths. I mean, God's in heaven. He's over all the earth. He's in Jerusalem. He's in charge of the hair on your head. There's no honesty scale. If you lie, you're accountable to God for your words. Jesus is telling those people to get rid of their clever systems to justify dishonesty. Okay, what do disciples do? Disciples value truth in all their interactions and relationships. Disciples don't need oaths to be truthful. In the kingdom of God, you don't need to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. There's no law against perjury in the kingdom of God because there doesn't need to be one. The kingdom of God is populated by truth-tellers. Well, this brings us to Jesus' words on divorce in verses 31 and 32. This is a really complex topic, and it weighs heavy with pain and heartache. I'd almost rather say nothing here than say too little. But Jesus' teachings are always good, and that includes this. So while there is much to say, for our purposes this morning, I can say that Jesus tells us to be people for whom marriage really matters. Now, long ago, God knew about the hard hearts of his people. And so in giving the law of Moses, he made a concession. Since divorces were going to happen, 
through Moses, God established some laws that kind of acted as guardrails to protect vulnerable women in that context. So the guardrail said, when a man divorces his wife, he must give her a certificate of divorce so that she is free to legally remarry because many women in that context would be vulnerable and would not be provided for without a marriage. Well, fast forward to Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, divorce was pretty easy to do. It wasn't really that serious of a matter. No big deal. There was debate about on what grounds you could even get divorced. Many said that a man could put his wife out for burning his dinner or for losing her looks. Just as long as he did the right paperwork. Just as long as he gave her the certificate. See, they took marriage lightly so that divorce wasn't all that serious. Jesus tells us, his disciples, to take marriage seriously so that divorce can't be taken lightly. Well, what do disciples do? Again, this is really complicated, but I can give you a very quick summary of the ethics of this from Scripture. Divorce is a tragedy. Divorce is only for cases where the marriage covenant is being destroyed by sins like sexual unfaithfulness, abandonment, abuse, or other similar horrific things. The people of God who have formed around Jesus are not to be marked by the practice of divorce. Now, for the sake of time, I want to combine the two examples in verses 21 through 30 into one basic point. Jesus takes us beyond these visible acts, murder and adultery, these things that are commanded against, and he brings us right down to the inner heart where these things start. He tells us to be righteous all the way down to the root, down to our desires. Adultery, to be clear, is sexual relationship with someone other than your spouse. Now, in the ancient world, commonly, adultery was excusable for the husband, but not the wife. And also, historically, men have sexually objectified women. So I think those are some of the reasons that Jesus probably puts the focus on men in this passage. But what he says here applies to all of us more broadly. Jesus clearly condemns adultery, but he goes even further. Jesus says, it's not just your actions, it's your imaginations. Sexual unfaithfulness can also be done in the heart and the mind at the level of desire. The word here is lust. Now, we often notice beauty and attractiveness in others, and that's normal. But it becomes sin when we desire to possess that beauty for our own sexual gratification. That's adultery of the heart. It's something you choose. It's like, it's like finding a spark and then deciding to build a fire out of it. 
And notice what Jesus does. He puts his finger right on the problem. He doesn't blame women for the way that they act or the way that they dress. No, the problem starts in the eye and in the imagination. And the full responsibility is on us, especially men, to control our desires. But maybe there's something in this passage that caught your attention. I mean, it is stunning that Jesus says lust in your heart is equivalent to adultery itself. Now, he's probably using hyperbole to make his point. I mean, obviously, lusting after someone and then committing adultery with them is worse than just merely lusting in your heart. But the point of Jesus is that you can't separate those two things. Lust in your heart is serious business. So what do disciples do? Jesus tells out to scoop out our eye or cut off our hand if it causes us to sin. This is a rhetorical device. If you shouldn't take this literally, please don't. <laughs> but you should take this seriously. Jesus is not literally calling us to self-mutilation, but he's calling us to self-denial. So don't cut out your eye, but maybe you should cut out certain things from your life. Maybe unrestricted, unfiltered internet access is something you should cut out. Maybe certain movies, certain books. Protect your imagination. Because sin is serious. And then finally we get to what Jesus has to say about murder. And again, he takes us down to the root, anger. And not, not all anger is evil. You should be angry at child abuse, sweatshops, scammers who steal money from the elderly. Yeah, even God himself gets angry sometimes. No, Jesus here is talking about a certain type of anger, the anger of pride, the anger of hatred that's aimed at another person, the sort of anger that says, I wish you were dead. That's the root behind murder, and what goes on in our hearts is serious business. So what do disciples do? Basically... They bring the kingdom of God into the present. When the kingdom of God fully comes, there'll be no anger. There'll only be fellowship. So today, disciples of Jesus make peace. They reconcile. This is what Jesus is talking about. When a fellow Christian is deeply angry with you, drop what you're doing. Even if you're right in the middle of worshiping God during church, Drop what you're doing and go make it right. That's how important this is. Even with those who are out to get you, be a peacemaker. Because reconciliation doesn't just happen. Disciples of Jesus make it happen. From these six examples, a theme begins to emerge. We are called to radically follow Jesus in every area of our lives. 
The discipleship he wants from us envelops all of us, our words, our imaginations, our money, our marriage or our singleness, our bedroom, the enemies we invite to our dining room table, all of us. That's what discipleship asks. And brothers and sisters, this is demanding. To be frank with you, I can't live up to this. To, to love my enemies completely and perfectly, to, to have a heart that's free of anger, to let go of revenge and respond instead with subversive love, after what those guys did to me? I can't do any of that on my own. I, I just don't have it in me. But I do have the Holy Spirit in me. So I can be like Jesus. And you can too. See, that's the thing about Jesus' call to radical demanding discipleship. This is not salvation by self-help. The Lord has given us what we need to do it. We are being called to follow the one who's given his life for us. And so the only fitting response is that we give our lives back to him in discipleship. And when we do this as a people, something amazing happens. The kingdom of God begins to break into our world. So brothers and sisters... May this radical discipleship of following Jesus be what we are all about. Amen.
The Apostles' Creed has been used by many different Christian traditions from all over the world, and even today is regularly recited by uh, different churches and groups everywhere. Now, these words are ancient. The earliest version was taught to candidates for baptism in the third century. The Apostles' Creed summarizes the great truths of our Christian faith. So let's speak these ancient words together as found in your bulletin. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. As we focus on our time now on offering, I want to share these three questions that Biz Bracker, a professor at Boston College, poses to her students. The first is, what brings you joy? What are you good at? What does the world need you to do? What brings you joy? What are you good at? And what does the world need you to do? What amazing thoughts to sprout in the minds of college-age people. But what about us? What if we were to take the time and pray and God ask us to lead us to find our joy, our skills, and our purpose? And then if we set out each day to offer these to the people and the world around us. I think our days may look a bit different. As the offering bags get passed through your hands, Pray that God inspires you to know his design, that you are alone are made and to give, and then may he equip you to carry it out.
amazing and creative Lord, we come to you this moment to focus our hearts and our minds on offering what you have created us to offer and how we can live that out. The world tells us that success is marked by ownership and perfection, when in truth, curiosity and purpose are how you created us to function best. May we be inspired by the people and the experience around us to find our joy, what we're good at, and then may we actively seek to do what the world around us needs us to do. We ask this all in your name that stands alone because you are God. Amen. You may be seated. And now let us turn to God in prayer. O oh God, we give you thanks and praise because when the world turned away from you, you sent your child, Jesus Christ, your word become flesh to reconcile us to one another and to you so that the righteousness of your law might be fulfilled in us. Though he was killed, you raised him to life. And now in each generation, your servants work together to plant and water the seed of your word, which you caused to grow in us, so that following your ways, your kingdom would come to this earth. This morning we pray for those who received the pain and harm from this world, those who are victims of unfaithfulness and victims of divorce, those who are attacked as enemies because they're different, and those who are caught up in patterns of vengeance and retaliation, Lord, bring your kingdom to these people through your church changing the world. This morning, we pray for the family of Joanne Wasaki, her daughter Karen and others who are mourning her passing a few weeks ago. Lord, be with them. And we continue to pray for Murray, for Phil's family, that you would continue to give comfort that you would help them in their grief. And now we pray together the Lord's Prayer as found in your bulletin. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Amen.
Jesus asks us to do what he himself has done, to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies. And he's done this to the point where it even brought him crucifixion. But it's through that death that resurrection and new life comes. So brothers and sisters, as we walk on the path of discipleship and continue to follow our Lord, I'm so excited about doing that together with you. he has called you this week. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen. We go forth in the name of Christ. Thanks be to God.